We are back with a long-awaited episode of Not Related. Welcome back, everyone. In this episode, Human Evolution Revised, Timelines and Multi-Regionalism. You may or may not know, but in the past 10 years, there have been monumental changes in the way that we think of early human evolution and humans on this planet. Now, this isn't just coming from genetic data, but there are new archaeological sites coming out every single year. And the simple narrative of evolution that a lot of us grew up with has really been upturned and needs a revision. Now, this is something that has been happening within the scientific community. In this episode, we don't have a book that we're going to read, but I have compiled many articles from different journals. You will see their links in either the comments or the, well, the comments to either the audio file, if you have the podcast, or the video comments, if you're on YouTube. But that's what we're going to be going over today. And not just that, because, you know, we have to make it a little bigger brained than that, because this is the biggest brain podcast, right? So we're also going to talk about general problems in creating narratives in history. Or this isn't really history, but it's a, a field that's somewhat related to it in how evidence appears to us and how we look at that evidence. And I'm also going to follow up this episode with... I don't want to say a series, but I also plan on doing an episode on prehistoric human civilization. Although in this episode, we're just going to be talking about how these changes have happened and how we understand evolution. Now, before we get into it, I will, of course, I have to make the, the mandatory plugs. That is, if you want to donate to the podcast, paypal.me slash Luke M. Smith, M as in mandatory. And you can donate there. I will read out your donation in the next episode. You can also go to lukesmith.xyz, that is .xyz, for more information about either myself or the podcast, the podcast's website, which I've now sort of redone. It's very simple, but I've redone it. But you can go to that at notrelated.xyz. That's not related, no spaces, .xyz. Anyway, let's go ahead and get into it. Now, there's this old story that a lot of us were told, were either told, taught in school, or we saw it on documentaries. This is the kind of stuff that I, when I was back in high school, you could go on, I, I guess we had YouTube back then, you could go on different internet sites and watch PBS documentaries or, I don't know, Nature Channel or something, and they would have these documentaries on early human evolution. And they had a very particular narrative about them. You've all heard it, let's go through it. And that is around 100,000 years or so ago, probably a little less, there was a tribe of quasi-humans in East Africa. And they lived together and they did whatever tribes do for a period. And around uh, maybe, I forget the exact date, but around 70,000 years ago, there was a big eruption, uh, the Toba eruption. And this caused a population bottleneck, meaning the number of people in that tribe, in humankind, so to speak, dwithered down to a very small number. Uh, but people evolved in this environment in the wake of the eruption and in, a wake, in the wake of other environmental factors. And around 50,000 years ago, this tribe, again from East Africa, spread outside of Africa itself and, of course, to other parts of Africa. And they also began developing, I should say, during the upcomings of this eruption, they also developed unique traits that are unlike all of their predecessors. That is something we call behavioral modernity. 
Uh, and that is to say that people began making more advanced tools. They began uh, doing all the things that we think of as being human, as opposed to the dumber creatures in the world. You know, the potentially even other kinds of uh, hominids like Neanderthals, which according to popular culture, aren't particularly intelligent or at least as, as dexterous as us. So we developed a level of material culture that was better than all others. And 50,000 years ago, these ancestors of ours, this tribe spread out of Africa all over the world. Now, this is, this is sort of the common narrative. A lot of you people have heard this kind of stuff. Uh, it comes from different places. Um, the, it's sometimes called the Grape Leap Forward. That is, there is some kind of maybe mental or cultural change that people go through during this period. Uh, maybe they develop language or something like this. Actually, relatively recently, uh, building off of this old theory, as I'm going to tell you this this narrative of human evolution isn't really sufficient, but building off of this old theory, recently in my field, linguistics, uh, there was a book that came out called, uh, what was it, Why Only Us by Bob Berwick and Noam Chomsky, uh, which casts, takes this narrative and puts it in terms of language. That is, the cognitive change that happened during this period was the development of the mental capacity to use language, you know, merge for Chomsky. But nonetheless, this is the story that a lot of us grew up with, the idea that there is a small group of people and they developed during this period and spread out from really one particular place in East Africa. Now, as I said, this narrative has started to fall apart. There were some good reasons to believe it, or at least good circumstantial reasons to believe it, uh, but it's worth talking about how uh, what, what the problems are. Now, before we even talk about that, I want to talk about uh, whenever we're dealing with history or whenever we're dealing with, uh, you know, reconstructing the past, there is a kind of philosophical problem that we're always going to have. Now, there's the old adage of absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. You probably have heard that before, but it's a principle that a lot of people don't really think through, at least in this context. Because a lot of times when you look at people who are writing about history or writing about human evolution or other events that our knowledge is limited of, they write in terms of what we have found. That is, what archaeological sites we've found, what specific evidence we've, we've found. There's uh, People often call... Well, this will often be labeled an evidence-based view of the world, which sounds very smart. It sounds very reasonable. But when you're addressing a field where most of the information you don't know about, uh, that uh, having an evidence-based view is not necessarily complete. Now, I'm not suggesting you should just believe things for no reason, but what I am saying is that evidence is going to be biased in particular directions. For example, when we're digging up archaeological sites, there are going to be biases in those sites. For example, there's a, a recency bias. There are a whole lot of fossils out there which have eroded over time due to their just extremely long age that we don't have access to. So we shouldn't necessarily assume that those more recent ones that we found are, in fact, the earliest examples. And if we have an evidence-based base, narrative of prehistory or history in general, we might rely only on what we can see, which is really a biased portion of all of the evidence out there. 
Now, that's very important. This has to do, I think, as I mentioned before, I want to talk about prehistoric human civilization in another episode, and this is very relevant for that, but it's relevant here as well. That is, a lot of the narrative that went into this theory of an East African tribe that we all come from, a lot of it comes from the fact that, well, there were very available East African archaeological sites that, uh, due to the climate, made uh, finding early humans relatively easy compared to other places in the world. And we happen to have been exposed to this information, and we constructed a narrative out of it. Or we had uh, some examples of material culture in Homo sapiens, but if you look at Neanderthals, we didn't have the same examples of material culture. And the erroneous assumption is to, you know, uh, to say, ah, oh, we have evidence of it in these more recent Homo sapiens sites, therefore it didn't exist in Neanderthal sites. We'll talk about that later. We'll talk about Neanderthals in a bit. But anyway, so just bear this in mind. Whenever we're looking at history or prehistory, we are dealing with an incomplete portion of the pie, and not just an incomplete one, but one that is biased in certain directions. So we always have to keep that in mind. Now let's talk specifically about some of the, the things that are, I'll get into the archaeological evidence. Again, I have a lot of papers that I'm going to rush through in a bit. But let's just talk about some of the way reasons people originally believed this theory and why they're not necessarily as strong as you might think. Now, one of the reasons for believing this recent out of Africa, out of East Africa specifically theory, is what are called uniparental markers in genetics. Now, back in the day, and when I say back in the day, I'm talking about ancient history in terms of genetics and human evolution, which is around the year 2000 or so. Back in those days, uh, one of the first genetic tools people were using were so-called uniparental markers. That is, the Y-chromosomal uh, putting people into different haplogroups, the Y-chromosomal haplogroups and the mitochondrial DNA haplogroups. Now, if you don't know what any of that means, uh, it's relatively simple. I'm no geneticist, but it, it's not a difficult concept to understand. Um, you have, for example, mitochondrial DNA, which is DNA that is specific to you and you inherited it from your mother. And it is, it is well, there might be minor mutations, but it's pretty much unchanged from your mother. She got it from her mother. She got it from her mother, on and on and on. So there is this um, mitochondrial DNA that is shared on the uh, female lines. And everyone has mitochondrial DNA, both male and females, but you inherit it from your mother. There's also Y-chromosomal DNA, which you inherit from your father, although you only have it if you are male. You do not have Y-chromosomal DNA if you are a female because you do not have a Y-chromosome. Uh, but uh, either way, so there are these particular, there, there's Y-chromosomal uh, haplogroups that you can sort people into, and there are based on, well, I should say based on the mutations that occur in either the Y-chromosomal DNA or the mitochondrial DNA, since they are only coming from one parent, it's very easy to trace where particular people come from if you trace them back. Because, you know, the mutations that occur are not getting interference from another parent. So back in this era, there were a lot of people who would look at these uniparental markers. They would look at DNA. It does gradually change over time. It does gradually mutate this, uh, un these uniparental indicators. But they're a good way of finding ancestry. Now, when people first started doing this, when we didn't have you know, all the genomic data that we now have, 
This was very interesting, and it also pushed people towards a relatively recent origin point of all humans. That is, uh, you could do the math or do whatever genetic data we did have, and you could find that people actually had relatively recent ancestors, perhaps even at the time of this hypothetical African group, maybe a little before, maybe a little after, or something like that. And that makes it feel like, well, well, I'll go ahead and say this, where we date the so-called mitochondrial Eve that everyone gets mitochondrial DNA from, or the Y chromosomal Adam, which is where all males get their Y chromosomal DNA from, is a constantly changing problem. That is, the more data we have, the more the dates of when those people existed are going to change. Um, but let's, let's just say hypothetically that they date to around that culture, um, around that period or something like that. One thing you have to remember about this, that is even if the evidence pointed in that direction, uniparental markers, they're not giving you a real sense of the whole genome, where the whole thing comes from. Uh, one example in history you can think about, you know, very famously, people talk about Genghis Khan as siring a whole bunch of children, like, oh, 20% of the people in the world dis descend from Genghis Khan. Well, let's imagine a hypothetical where... Everyone in the world descends from Genghis Khan. That is, he takes over the entire world, and every child of the next generation, uh, their father is Genghis Khan. He just totally kills all over all other men in the world. So everyone uh, in the next generation is his child. Well, that makes him what what is called Y chromosomal Adam, because every human descends from this one particular, or you know, has Y chromosomal DNA from this person at least every male. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that everyone is related at that point. It's not like we come from one particular tribe at that point. There's still a bunch of genetic differences between all of the different mothers that these children have from all different places and cultures and ethnic groups in the world. There's so much difference between them that we're, if we say something like, well, everyone descends from this point, you're not necessarily getting a complete story. Especially if, let's imagine, you know, Genghis Khan, for whatever reason, his genes just aren't generally good. They code for bad things that are, that are selected against or something like that. Well, in a couple generations, what's going to happen is that those grandparents... Now, of course, Genghis Khan's children are going to have 50% of his DNA, but his grand grandchildren aren't necessarily going to. They might inherit, uh, you know, more of another grandfather or another grandmother's DNA more than him. So it's not, it's not like all the DNA from then on out has to be 50% him uh, once a generation passes. So you can imagine his particular DNA being selected against. And maybe in 100 or 200 years, there's very little, a very, a very small portion of the genome of Genghis Khan is visible, but his Y chromosomal haplogroup is going to be everywhere. But if you construct, again, if you can construct a narrative that is simply based on these haplogroups, the, the Y chromosomal genetic data, you're getting one that is sort of biased in favor of more recent origins. Okay? And that's, that's one problem nudging us towards this out-of-Africa theory. Now, there are other little glitches in this older conception of humans being generated at this point in East Africa so long ago. One, one other little thing I mentioned at the beginning was the Toba eruption, which I remember when I was watching documentaries as a kid of 
early human evolution, you always hear about the Toba eruption, this volcano that erupted and changed the climate to such an extent that humans decreased to, you know, 200 members or something. All right. Now, one thing you need to know about this that I didn't know till very recently is that this is actually not an idea developed in the scientific community. It's actually an idea that came from a journalist. Now, there are some people in the scientific community that have defended it, that think there is good evidence for it, but there are also, it is not, it is not a general consensus, and there are many who argue against it. In the video description, I actually included a recent article, from, actually only from this year. Uh, the lead author, I think, is Eugene Smith. Of course, there, it's a scientific article, so there are many, many authors of it. But uh, it goes through one particular site uh, as an exemplar in South Africa, or I guess Southern Africa, where there is no such decrease in the human population during that period or anything of the sort. So it seems that uh, constructing this kind of narrative about human prehistory isn't necessarily as foolproof as we anticipated it be before. Now, there are, of course, some good, I guess, well, I don't want to say good in a logical sense, but there are some reasons that people have liked the recent out of Africa idea. Now, first off, as I said before, it is, it is a narrative that is constructed on evidence, which, which sounds like a very good thing, but you have direct evidence and you're constructing a narrative like, ah, I found this archaeological site, therefore it has this particular significance. Uh, it's the earliest one we found, therefore it is the earliest example of humans being there, and that is proof that they, we come from this point and not 100,000 years before or something like that. So it's easy to construct a narrative base based on it. And there's also a sense in which I, I think it appeals to our, this is sort of related, but it also is, appeals to our prior assumptions that humans should come from one particular tribe, one point of genesis, one Adam and Eve, so to speak. Now, of course, mitochondrial Eve and Y-chromosomal Adam do not necessarily come from the same time period even due to how the genetics of it work out, but it does sort of feel right for us to come from, we are one particular tribe. I mean, additionally, there are, you know, minor political motivations as well. Uh, you know, such, such an, if you have the idea that everyone is very recently related, it minimizes the extent to which you might feel racist. So that can be a very good thing as well for some people. Uh, and it's also one of the reasons that while people in the West, they have really taken the recent out of Africa theory very seriously and have really gone full bore with a lot of the evidence. It never really caught on in some places, including some places in China. Now there, they don't really have the, uh, you know, they, they don't really have the the psychological need to minimize their felt racism. So they can say things like, "Ah, well, humans have been here for hundreds of thousands of years, evolving. That's no big problem for them." But well, anyway, let's actually get into. I've procrastinated long enough. Let's go ahead and get into some recent evidence. I have. Many papers, you might be able to hear them, uh, but all the links to all these will be in the video description. And these are recent finds, most of these in the past just couple of years, just three years or so. Now, remember the old theory that we're, of course, using as a straw man, uh, but it, it's a real straw man, was the idea that humans originate, or modern humans, modern Homo sapiens, originate around 100,000 years ago in East Africa. They're around there. They develop behavioral modernity and begin expanding around 50,000 years ago to get to the other parts of Africa and the rest of the world. 
Now, the first article I have here, you may have seen that I saw this reported a lot in the news. Uh, this came out just last year. The main author is Daniel Richter. Again, 2017. I'll read the title because why not? The Age of the Hominin Fossils from Jebel Ehud, Morocco, and the Origins of the Middle Stone Age. Now, the interesting thing about this article is that it finds what you could call modern humans or maybe slightly uh, anterior versions of Homo sapiens, not as, not as opposed, they're not Neanderthals or something else, but our particular Homo sapiens sapiens, or at least some uh, immediate predecessor. Uh, they find fossil evidence of them in North Africa, again, Morocco, in 315,000 year, 315, years before the present. And that is, you know, three times the time length from, again, the straw theory that we're using. So this, this of course, made the rounds because beforehand, I mean, people have gradually been pushing the timeline back, you know, from, okay, 50,000 to 100,000, maybe 150,000, maybe 200,000. But this, even this uh, particular find was somewhat of a surprise. Not just because it comes from North Africa, which was a little anticipated, but because it just goes so far back. But it's one good example of it. Now, another recent genetic find, let me see if I can pull this up. Um, another genetic find by Schlebusch et al. And this is, again, is in uh, 2017. They published in Science. It was a, not an archaeological site, but a genetic estimate of the point of divergence between Bushmen, Khoisan people who live in southern Africa, uh, a genetic analysis of when they diverge from all other humans. Now, a theory proposing a recent out-of-Africa theory, you know, 50,000 years ago would anticipate this to be some point around 50,000 years ago, maybe a little more, maybe a little less. But what we find here is that their estimated point of divergence is 260,000 uh, yeah, 260,000 to 350,000 years before the present. Again, this is more on the scale of the article we just talked about. That is way, you know, hundreds of thousands of years ago. One thing I should note this article mentions, this is pretty well established nowadays, but it's well understood that at some point, you know, maybe 10,000 years or so ago, there's a really big genetic ingression into Africa from, uh, I believe, over the Red Sea, from, you know, Saudi Arabia area, where basically every African person nowadays, it might be every African person, it might be nearly everyone, um, but they have genetic, particular, you know, genetic uh, details that come from Eurasia. That is, there's pretty much no person in Africa who has pure African ancestry at this point. And this is interesting for different reasons. One, one of the things this article is based on is the fact that, well, we really miscalibrated earlier genetic evidence in Africa because we didn't understand that there was this genetic ingression. But it also indicates the point that a lot of human evolution, it's not as if there are populations per se moving, but sometimes there are just genetic changes that come uh, go forth or come back without necessarily, they, they might not make huge changes in the population. Uh, but in this case, I, I think the theory on this particular ingression back into Africa, I think it has to do with a movement of pastoral people. But all, you know, it spreads all throughout the continent. Now, we can, of course, leave the continent for finding even more interesting sites, I suppose, that date back, not exactly to the same levels, but at least persuasively further back than we might anticipate with the old 
out of Africa, recent out of Africa origin. Now, there, I have another article linked, again, in the description. This came out actually this year in Nature, Ecology, and Evolution. This is by, oh, actually, I don't know how to, I think it's Graukit, Graukit et al. You can check it out yourself, but the title is actually self-explanatory. Homo sapiens in Arabia by 85,000 years ago. Again, expected to be, I, well, in the older theory, of course, we didn't expect humans to be out here. This is even before the Toba eruption, I believe. So you didn't expect humans to get this far out. Uh, but also, uh, even in more modern reconceptions of how, modern reimaginings of and recalibrating the time scale, it wasn't necessarily expected that humans were anywhere maybe outside of the Levant in Eurasia at this point, but it is somewhat clear that they made it to Arabia at that point. Now, there are other couple other articles as well that have to deal with humans arriving in Southeast Asia relatively quicker. This is the Demeter et al. paper. This is an older one, quote-unquote, coming from 2015, and it basically shows that human remains have been, modern human remains have been found in South Africa, or South, excuse me, Southeast Asia, as far back as 63,000 years ago, or yes, 1,000 years ago. And more than that, there's the West Away at All paper, this was published in Nature, and this was only last year, that actually find even further dating sites as far back as 73,000 years before the present in Sumatra, I believe. And I think this was, this is interesting for different reasons because it, it's one of the first examples of humans living in the rainforest outside of Africa. Now, this is important because, as I mentioned before, a lot of times when we are clumsily creating a narrative of some scientific theory, we rely too much on evidence and not enough on where the evidence plausibly leads. Now, in this case, one interesting thing to remember, the thing that's so important about these sites in Southeast Asia of a w much wetter climate, is that we're looking at sites that have likely been pruned away by time. That is, they're probably, you know, if you compare, for example, human remains that are in a desert and covered by some layers of sand, but there's not that much sedimentation, there's not much rain, uh, that kind of stuff can survive for hundreds of thousands of years, not necessarily easily, but more easily than it could survive, for example, in a rainforest and jungles where there's constant flooding, constant, you know, upheavals and stuff like that. Now, the interesting thing particular to Southeast Asia is, you might not know about this, but back, it's debated exactly when this happened, but it's, it's pretty well understood that when there were more glaciers, this in the entire area of Southeast Asia was really a kind of lost subcontinent that's sometimes called Sundaland. A lot of the Indonesian islands, well, Indonesia at this point wouldn't have been even a series of islands. It really would have been a big peninsula. So I, th I think it connects Borneo and all, all a bunch of other of these larger islands in the area. And seeing that humans seem to have made it here at this point is interesting in particular because what that means is there are even more human remains that have been totally lost to the ocean when the the uh, interglacial period began and we started losing a bunch of our glaciers 
what of course happened is we'd lost a lot of the land in Southeast Asia, and there might be a whole lot more evidence of human activity here. It seems to be a kind of, you know, a good place for human development. And of course, there are these sites dating back to around the period where this lost continent would have been lost. But it's just interesting to remind yourself that there's a good possibility that a lot of the evidence in this area is now gone, and we can't recover it until we create, I guess, submarines that can do archaeology. Now, in addition to this, there's one other area which is less relevant for human evolution, possibly, but there has been significant revision in how humans populated it, is the Americas. So when I was in school, when I was in grade school, I was taught that the Americas were settled by a human population. In fact, an archaeological culture, which is typically termed the Clovis culture, which came to the continent over the Bering Land Bridge around, uh, what was it, 12,000 years ago. So in the last Ice Age or whatever, uh, there was a way to pass through from Siberia into, Aust- I was about to say Australia, into Alaska, and thus get into the Americas. And the idea was, during this narrow window of time, this was the period where humans first came to the Americas, and the first human culture there was the Clovis culture, and they expanded all over the place. Now, this has been another realm where uh, things have gotten more complicated. Now, first off, this is an area of a lot of debate, but it is pretty much well established that the Clovis culture could not have been the first archaeological culture in the Americas. There are many, many sites that date to thousands of years before it. Now, not astronomically further back in history, but there, well, depending on who you ask, actually, we'll say the consensus among American archaeologists is that the Clovis hypothesis, so to speak, is wrong if you think that they're the first people. But the first people who came to the Americas only came a couple thousand years ago. Now, there are some other archaeologists, I think, in, in, in weirdly enough, in South America, who have argued that there are archaeological sites in South America that date back to 60,000 years ago. I mean, that, that's pretty crazy. That dates back around the period of, you know, as I mentioned before, that's uh, almost as far back as that article that mentioned humans being in Arabia at that point. Now, that, that would be pretty impressive if that were the case, but none of those sites are, uh, you know, this is probably my bias as an American. There might be really good reasons to believe in them, but they're not consensus, at least in the English-speaking world. But there are sites like that, and either way, there are definitely many archaeological sites and archaeological evidence that point to a pre-Clovis inhabitation of the Americas. And additionally, one of the things that's come out very recently, I think I put a couple links to the articles to this extent on the genetics, the genomics of American people. One very interesting thing you find, not not right next to Siberia, not you know in a place that you would think people would come over, but if you go deep into the Amazon, there are a couple tribes, and they have these. Uh, you know, I, I don't know the specifics because I'm not a geneticist, but they have a genetic affinity that relates them to the uh, Melanesian or Papuan people. Uh, or also Aboriginal Australian, the substrate of people that 
you know, come around from this area. And for whatever reason, they seem to have an abnormal affinity with a lot of Amazonian tribes, weirdly enough. I mean, you might have heard in, heard in the news recently, so there was that guy who got killed, a missionary or something, who got killed by the inhabitants of the Andaman Islands. Now, if you don't know, you know, the people who are, well, specifically the Sentinelese, but uh, the people in the Andaman Islands and, you know, a lot of Papuan people and Australian Aborigines have this genetic affinity with some Indian tribes in South America, which is really bizarre because, well, there are different interpretations of it. I think the easiest interpretation of it is when people, when a mostly Siberian population moved over the Bering Land Bridge, maybe there was some, uh, you know, some other people from South Asia or something like that who came over with them. There's some kind of genetic indicators in there. But I think a more radical theory, you know, I've heard some people whisper about this, but a more radical theory would be that America was, in fact, inhabited or originally settled by people who were genetically similar to these Australasian people, that is Australian or, you know, Papuan or something like this. The Americas were originally inhabited by these people, and the Clovis culture or the pres, uh, those cultures that preceded the Clovis culture moved in and sort of conquered this people or removed them genetically or they maybe they died out for another reason or something like that. I think that's a possibility, but that also brings out other problems. That is, why isn't there more genetic evidence of these people or something like that? Either way, it's a question worth at least thinking about because I, I think that a lot of people are scratching their heads about it. Anyway, so I think it's about time for a break. I think I'm way over 30 minutes now. Now, I've talked just about what it, the population that is sometimes called modern humans, homo sapiens. But, of course, I'm leaving out actually most of the puzzle so far. We'll talk about the rest after the break, but that the rest of the puzzle is those groups of people which we have traditionally thought of as not being human. That is the Neanderthals or other the other ghost lineages of our past that we might not even know about. So in the next half of the episode, I'm going to talk about how uh, how we think of these other kind of people is well, we'll just say maybe they're a little more human than you might anticipate. And they might, it might actually be hard to divide us from them. And if that's the case, humanity actually gets put back, put back as in back in time, much further than any of these sites indicate, because all of these sites are talking specifically about quote-unquote anatomically modern homo sapiens. Anyway, so we're going to have a break. I'm going to come back. I'm going to read some donations, and we will talk about that. All right, and we're back. Time for some donation reading. Only a couple this time, I think, because uh, during last month I wasn't quite as active, but uh, it has been a while, so there are a couple to read. Uh, $5 on Patreon from Mike R., $1 on Patreon from Nanya Business, uh, $1 on Patreon from Dusty G., $15, I think this is PayPal, from Sebastian G., $2 from Michael G., and... $10 from Alex Oddities. Alex says, Thank you for your Linux and LaTeX tutorials. $5 Canadian from Bradley B. And $10 from Ken H. He says, or $20 from Ken H. Who says, Thanks for the great tutorials. Thank you. And Michael R. sends in 20 pounds. He also asked some questions for the live stream. I would answer them here, but uh, 
Uh, I guess I'll just save them for the next live stream I do, which hopefully will be coming January, possibly even before that. I might be able to do one between Christmas and the 1st of January, but we will see about that. Now let's get back to the discussion at hand. I have actually only been speaking about a small segment of the evolution of the genus Homo. And that is, I've been talking about what are sometimes called modern humans or uh, anatomically modern humans or Homo sapiens sapiens. But in reality, the question is much wider than that. Now, as you probably know, there were many other semen, uh, humans or semi-humans in the area during this period of human evolution. For example, when I mentioned that this uh, East African population in the classical theory was moving out from East Africa into the rest of the world, the rest of the world, with the exception of the Americas, was really already inhabited by other things that you could call humans, like Neanderthals, you know, Homo erectus, all, the, all these different um, you know, human species at one time or another you know, living in these different areas. Now, in terms of classification, let's talk about Neanderthals for an example. Um, now, first off, I will say I, I call them Neanderthals. If you talk to any scientists, typically they call them Neanderthals. That is pronouncing the TH as a T because it's based on the German pronunciation. But I use the working man's pronunciation. So I call them Neanderthals. I swear if I get comments, tell people telling me to not say it that way, I will just shadow ban you or something. I so I snob plurals snob plurals and snob pronunciations annoy me to no end. I just can't send them. So I call them Neanderthals. If you call them Neanderthals, I'm I'm not offended, but if you try and make me say that, it sounds ridiculous. I'm sorry, I'm not doing it. Anyway, so Neanderthals. Um so the interesting thing about them is we've never really known how to classify them in binomial nomenclature. Some people think they should be called Homo, Homo neanderthalensis, as if they are they are their own species. Some people think they should be Homo sapiens neanderthalensis. Now that's a question out there, and it, I mean it's not like there's a right or wrong answer. Uh, it, it is really just a way of classifying things. But as time has progressed, as again, we've talked about this earlier and earlier origin of modern humans, we also see that that origin is more intertwined with Neanderthals and other early hominid species than we might have earlier anticipated. Now, I remember back in the early 2000s or so, I used to listen to, I don't remember what it is. Well, I remember one particular audio lecture I was listening to once, and it was about early human evolution. I remember the guy saying, this again, this was like, I don't know, 2003 or something like that. He said something like, well, you know what? We don't know very much about early human evolution, but we do know one thing, and that is humans and Neanderthals never breeded. They couldn't have done that. That was impossible. Now, of course, that was... The feeling back then, again, the feeling based on uh, misunderstandings of the haplogroup analysis, you know, genetic analysis and just sort of prior assumptions. But, of course, we know that that is false. That statement is false. It is uh, accepted fact that nearly all non-African humans, and I think some Africans as well, have Neanderthal ancestry. And there are also many other kinds of humans, early humans, or quasi-humans that contribute to modern uh, human genotypes. One that was found recently uh, are so-called Denisovans or Denisovans. I have no preference as to which one is correct, but different people say one or the other. So Denisovans, uh, it's, it's sort of an interesting story. It seems to be a kind of human that existed in Southeast Asia, and a lot of people in that area have 
a considerable portion of their genome is based on these uh, pre-Homo sapiens sapiens population. And they, uh, I think the DNA, if I remember right, someone can correct me if I'm wrong, but I, if I remember right, the DNA was actually, ex we don't have a full skeleton of one of these, but we extracted DNA from like a finger bone or something like that, if I, if I remember correctly. Um, at this point, there might be DNA from multiple sources, but uh, that, that's one of them. We also, of course, have Neanderthal DNA. We don't have, I don't think, any Neanderthal haplogroups, but we are accumulating more and more information about all of these different pre-modern humans. Now, back in the day, the idea was Neanderthals, for example, which people have known about for quite a bit, Neanderthals are stupid. In fact, there is a cultural icon of the Neanderthal. I mean, people refer to each other as Neanderthals to mean that, oh, that person is being stupid or something like that. That is a, a part of our wider view of how they allegedly were. Now, that is a position that is based on ignorance. Now, there's a lot that is up in the air about Neanderthals, but as more research has come out, as more uh, research is done into their archaeological cultures, we find that our Neanderthals are, were probably about as mentally advanced, at least, as modern humans are. In a case, if you don't know, modern humans compared to Neanderthals, at least physically, are brainlets. We have smaller brains than they do. Maybe that means something, maybe it doesn't. We can't be entirely sure. But, you know, just to give you an idea of some recent stuff, back in 2012, this is something that people talked about a good bit, but an article came out in the Journal of Archaeological Science. The lead author was George Ferentinos, again, 2012. And one of the things they find, this is back more than 100,000 years ago. So this is, you know, in that old theory of where Homo sapiens sapiens came from, this would predate the origin of that. But at a period more than 100,000 years ago, there seems to be pretty good evidence that the humans or demi-humans that were living in the area, which were Neanderthals, uh, seem to have at least some primitive understand or primitive ability to do seafaring, for example, in the Ionian islands around you know, Anatolia and Greece and stuff like that. There seems to be relatively good evidence of seafaring in that area. Neanderthals, again, originally, the idea was, oh, well, only modern humans went through this great, great leap forward 50,000 years ago. And that's when we de derived all this new archaeological culture and, you know, we de developed culture and stuff like this generally. Uh, but the further you look back at Neanderthals, you actually see that there are livelihood. Their cultures were much more complicated than we anticipated. They do bury dead. They can paint caves. And now, of course, again, the evidence for all of this stuff is going to be scanter because the time scale for dealing with a Neanderthal in Europe is often an order of magnitude larger because, you know, Neanderthals, I don't know when they're typically thought to have first come to Europe, but, you know, I think the divergence between Neanderthals and you know, modern humans, quote unquote, is around 800,000 years ago. It might be more, might be less, I'm not quite sure, but they have lived in Europe for hundreds of thousands of years. And, you know, that means many, many more times the amount of time for evidence of their existence to gradually erode. Now, one place, of course, we do somewhat notoriously find evidence of Neanderthals is, in fact, inside caves, you know. Uh, and that is because caves preserve evidence. If you can, if one of these people even made a very small kind of building or something else inside of a cave, 
where no one else could get to it, it's going to be preserved quite a bit longer. And part of the archetype, the, the stereotype of these kind of people living in caves comes from the fact that that is where evidence is often preserved. Now, there's a very, very interesting article. You should actually look this one up. If you're not going to look at any other ones up, look this one up. This is uh, Jalbert et al. This is, oh, I'm not quite sure how to pronounce that name. I apologize to whoever that is, but uh, this was published in Nature in 2016. And it goes into a particular uh, kind of construction that was found in a cave in France, in Occitan. How do you pronounce Occitan in English? Occitanie, however it is. But it was found in southern France. And the interesting thing about this place, it's not just a cave. It's not just a cave that seems to have evidence of fire. It dates back to around 175,000 years ago. Very much longer than any of the dates, most of the dates we've been talking about here. It dates back all that way back. And more than 300 meters deep into this cave, there is a kind of a structure that was built by Neanderthals. It had evidence of fire, but the interesting thing is that they used stalagmites to create, well, we're not really sure what it is, but to create kind of walls, uh, and fire was lit on top of these things. There's a kind of structure. Uh, you can actually look at this article. This is why I recommend you looking at it, because I can't show you, since this is an audio uh, lecture, I suppose. I can't show you exactly what they look like, but there are very beautiful color photos of what this thing looks like. And it seems that, again, you know, nearly 200,000 years ago, there were Neanderthals that were building some kind of structures. Maybe this is uh, some kind of home structure they're putting up, I don't know, to put their utensils on it or something, or maybe it's just a, something we would think of as being house-like. They're organizing the area, but you can think of whatever you want, but check this article out. But nonetheless, back way, you know, hundreds of thousands of years ago, you have these people who originally were thought of being sort of total brutes creating a kind of a structure. It's not a cement building or something like that, but it, there's clearly a whole lot of thought that goes into it. So you can check that out. And again, as I said, the problem that we have is one of the evidence that we have is not a representative sample of the evidence that actually exists. Now again, caves, it might be that Neanderthals had an even more complex uh, kind of physical culture outside of caves, but that's not going to last very long. You know, the buildings that even we build nowadays aren't going to last more than a hundred or so years if we're gone from them. You know, they'll be totally eroded over the course of, uh, you know, a hundred years or a thousand years or 10,000 years nearly everything we've created would be gone. But 100,000 years, that, that's pretty considerable. So that's the, I guess, the standard of evidence that we have to have for all these Neanderthal sites. Now, one other question that has to do with Neanderthal biology that is sort of an open thing that people talk about is whether Neanderthals, like modern humans, like us, had the ability to speak. I am just going to say that I think the answer is yes, but... I, don't, I also do not think that this is something that we can ascertain from what evidence we have one way or the other. Now, I will say one object of debate uh, in, lingui I mean, you know, in linguistics, there is this one little gene out there called the FOXP2 variant or gene or something like this. And you'll hear about it every once in a while. It's sometimes thought of as being the language gene or something like that. And uh, the reason it's called that is because the research into it began when there was a family, a Pakistani family living in Britain. 
that did not have the proper variant of this gene, and they more or less cannot produce language, any language. They, it's all, uh, or at least in the way we can. You can look it up yourself exactly how this works, but they, there's something mental about them that deprives them from having language in the way we do. So there, there's a lot of associations with this gene and asking questions as to whether a species, you know, can have language or something. Again, as a linguist, I don't like people who begin sentences as as an X, but I will say I'm not convinced there there's really any meaningful thing to get out from this gene, but whatever. Either way, there has been some research, well, it's found that Neanderthals seem to have the same FOXP2 variant that we have. That is, and if you so, if you take this very seriously, it would seem to indicate that they do, in fact, have spoken language. And this is shared. This variant is shared. Uh, you can check the what is it? The Krauss et al. article, 2007, should be in the video description. Uh, it basically argues that humans had this gene in common with Neanderthals, and it dates back at least 300 to 400 thousand years ago. So um, that. Supposedly, that would have been have to have been when language originate, originates. If you take it too seriously, I mean, if you want my opinion, I think the evolution of language is probably a little bit more complicated than that. There are probably other genes at play, but this is just one we happen to know about. So people take it. it it's probably a necessary condition, but not a sufficient condition. I'll just put it that way. But either way, I do think it's probable that Neanderthals had language. It just makes sense for me. Now, anyway, I've actually been talking about this in terminology that sort of biases you against the general case of multi-regionalism, because I've been talking about modern humans and Neanderthals as if they are two different categories that can easily be distinguished, and not just them, but all the other categories of early homo. Now, multi-regionalism is a theory that you're hearing more and more nowadays because it's the alternative to the out-of-Africa theory. And the idea behind it, it is very unintuitive because it doesn't consist in one particular group of humans moving all over the place. But the idea behind it, I think, is more robust to, to the data. The more evidence we find, the more... Uh, the more sane this story becomes, even though it, if it might sound a little weird to us at first. And the idea behind it is, in effect, that humanity didn't arise in one place or at one time, but has arisen gradually and in different places all over Eurasia and Africa uh, over a period of hundreds of thousands of years. That is, early human populations or early, well, we'll just call them human populations, including Neanderthal. We'll call them humans now. They've been promoted. I think it's sensible. So er, these early human populations, you know, Homo erectus even, or, you know, Denisovans, uh, you know, all of these spread out to different areas of the world, and they've been gradually evolving uh, to create the modern humans we now know. But additionally, there is constant genetic change or genetic exchange between these populations. So there will be, as we mentioned before, for example, there was a genetic ingression back into Africa a couple thousand years ago. But more substantially, even the so-called out-of-Africa narrative has good truth to it because during that period, there was a huge genetic outgoing from Africa. A lot of our genetic information, uh, possibly even most of it, comes from that period in Africa and moves out of the continent. 
And none of that is necessarily incompatible with multi-regionalism per se, because the emphasis is on an evolution that happens gradually in different places. There is no one human population. It evolves sort of in the same way that human languages evolve nowadays, where some languages next to others will change each other, or if there are people who you know go back and forth, they will change each other. In the same way, human populations, it's not like there's one population that went to everywhere, but it's a more complex web that has been working over hundreds of thousands of years. And this is important because it utterly changes, I mean, it really changes our scale of human history by an order of magnitude, you know, nearly, actually probably even more than that. Because when we're talking about a recent African origin of humanity, we're talking about 50,000 years ago that people moved around. But if you're talking about multi-regionalism, you're talking about 500,000 years at least, probably a good bit more, because that is often the date that separates us from Neanderthals or these other uh, species. Now, I should be, I've used the term ghost lineages a couple times. I should probably talk about what that is. So, you know, we know about Neanderthals. We have good evidence of them. We have some good evidence. We have genetic information from Denisovans. Uh, but there are also other lineages out there that we basically have not found but do exist. So we know that there are some populations. We don't know where exactly they are, but they are in our genome and they are waiting to be found ghost lineages out there. So there are other populations. Our story is incomplete, and it's only going to get more complicated. Um, but that's not a bad thing, because really we're starting to understand that humanity has been along, again, around for, you know, 10 times as long than we originally anticipated. And what constitutes a human isn't necessarily as rigid as we might think. Now, I will say there are some of the original arguments for a multi-regionalist hypothesis, just to go over them. Some of them have not stood this test of time, as with any scientific theory, but some have. But just to give you some of the ideas, one, for example, is the idea of morphological clades or cladistics. Now, this is an idea originally put forth by Xin Zhi Wu of the Chinese Academy of Sciences. And one of the things he noticed of early pre-Homo sapiens sapiens in East Asia is that a lot of them had a lot of morphological similarity to modern East Asians, weirdly enough. He actually goes through a list of them. Now, again, not all of them, I don't want to say not all of them have stood the test of time, but some of them are more general things. Like, for example, these early pre-sapiens sapiens uh, people, they had really flat faces, that notably fat, flat faces. And Wu also notes, well, contemporary East Asians have notably fat, flat faces as well. So you can think of this as a clade. Now, things like that are more general. You could imagine that evolving in different points. So it's not really as, as hard uh, as proof as you might think it would be. But he mentioned some other weirder things. Like, for example, you might notice, I don't know, you've probably seen this, but you haven't overtly seen it. Asian people have what are called shovel-shaped incisors. That is their upper, you know, the, the teeth, what are they like? I don't know, not the front teeth, not the one right next to the front teeth, but the one after it. For most non-Asian people, they're sort of pointy. But for East Asians, they are in fact sort of shovel-shaped at the edge. And this is something that you, you can see in any Asian person who gives you a teethy smile, but it's also common in pre-homo sapiens sapiens people of East Asia. Now, you could argue that, oh, well, maybe there's some very particular thing about East Asia that, you know, just makes that, uh, make it sort of homologous evolution, whatever it's called. 
Um, but I think it's pretty sensible to think that this is something that is genuinely uh, pri- is something that is a holdover of these early populations. And so it makes you think of modern Asians and pre-Sapiens-Sapiens Asians as being sort of part of a morphological clade, as in we should think of them as being more of a distinct category. Now, as I said, there are some, there are many other of these morphological things and, you know, other aspects um, that have either stood the test of time or haven't. But um, I I don't think that it's so much of a right and wrong thing. I I mean, if it's not clear, I think that we are moving more, the consensus view is moving more in favor of a, a view of multi-regionalism. But there still is a lot of reasons to believe that there is a huge genetic outflow from Africa at some period back in the past. And if you're trying to sort people either by time or by region, it's not going to work because both are variables that are changing. It's very difficult to actually put people into categories. Oh, by the way, speaking of Asian people, I, I just want to say this because every time I say this, a lot of people don't know this, it's, but it blows people's mind when they hear it. You guys know that Asians, Asians have dry earwax. It's not even wax. It's like crust. Did you know that? In fact, if you're Asian, did you know that people who aren't Asian have wet earwax? That's blowing someone's mind out there. <laughs> Every time you tell that to someone, they'll be like, what? Are you serious? Yeah, I mean, look it up. Look, look up Google pictures of it. It's so... It's so strange. I couldn't imagine not having wet earwax, but yeah, that's a thing. Although I don't think that's a morphological clade. I don't think we have any information about what pre-modern humans had for their earwax. I don't know. I don't know if that's knowable. All right, so I'm going to go ahead and bring this episode to a close. Now, this originally was only going to be half of an episode because I wanted to, I want to actually prime your brain for another episode I'm doing in the future. What I want you to take away from this, this episode is not so much, okay, scientific consensus changes. Yes, it does. Stuff like that. Um, I do want you to take away the fact that whenever, whenever we're creating narratives of history or prehistory, we cannot, you don't want to have a so-called evidence-based view. Because what that means is you are creating a narrative based on what you have been exposed to. And that's not going to be true if your narrative, if the information you have is not representative of reality. And what we've seen is that as we have accumulated more and more evidence, we have thrown, thrown away these, these narrower ideas of a more recent human origin based on the evidence that we had. Because guess what, we are, even today, we are going to find archaeological evidence from, you know, tens of thousands of years before those we already have. And that's going to change our view of, of prehistory. However, we're not going to find evidence tomorrow that says, oh, well, humans have to only be 500 years old or 10,000 years old. That's impossible. We already have evidence that that can't be true. So the change that it you know, new scientific research in this field causes is one-sided. We're always going to be putting the timescale back. Now, this means that human prehistory is always going to be bigger and more mysterious than we anticipate. We've tried to construct a narrative where humans arose very recently, and we have just been sort of here for a very brief period of time, and that's it. There's no, There's nothing hidden. There's no secret hyperborea there's no ancient human civilization there's no there's nothing else it's just we evolved and now we're here but the more time that we put in between that other things start to happen we start to wonder hmm i wonder if there was something that happened in that between period 
That is, could it be that maybe humans reached a level of advancement that, and not to say, you know, they had like computers or something, although maybe, uh, but, you know, what's to say humans, even, you know, Neanderthals or something, didn't have a relatively high level of social technological complexity. And due to the mere fact of entropy, more or less, uh, the things that are more complex erode over time much quicker. That's something I want you to think about. And it's something I want to talk about in an episode that might be the next episode, or it might be the the one after the next episode. But I'll be talking about prehistoric human civilizations and the evidence that we find in favor of those. Now, so I'm going to draw it to a close. I think I've gone way over the time I intended. But if you want to donate, uh, feel free to send a donation to paypal.me slash M as in mitochondrial DNA. And you can go to notrelated.xyz for more podcast information, including what where this podcast is syndicated. Or go to my, my website at lukesmith.xyz. All the information is there. All right, so that's about it. So I'm going to see you guys next time. I'm going to head out of here and do something with all these papers. Hope you enjoyed it. <laughs>